Thursday morning, you're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And my guest today will be Philip Ackerman Leist. He is, the, he is a farmer and um, just came out with a new book called A Precautionary Tale, and I will tell you more about him in just a little bit when he comes on. Uh, but first, I want to talk to you about what's going on. God, no question about what's going on right now all around the world. Um, we're dealing with this pandemic um, coronavirus, and how everyone is dealing with it is really different. Um, some people really are um, honoring the social distancing, and some people are really, you know, kind of, you know, taking it very lightly. And um, I think during this time, it's a great opportunity for us all to reset our patterns and to go inward and to contemplate what's really important and what we would like to be doing with our time. And yesterday in New York, it was a beautiful day, and I actually went outside to Comset State Park and met my sister-in-law and friend. <clears throat> we took a beautiful walk, and I thought we'd be the only ones there the way it's usually case when I go there, but instead there were hundreds and hundreds, the parking lot was packed, of people getting together, maintaining their distance, but getting together, taking nice walks, enjoying the beautiful nature, welcoming in spring, parents with children, you know, groups that I haven't seen together in so long. It was really actually lovely and heartwarming to see parents with their children and kids on bikes and walking and it was just beautiful and I really hope during this time people make time to get outside and really appreciate our beautiful natural world and um, on one of the listservs that I'm a part of called Calm Food, you know, somebody was questioning closing down the community gardens because they didn't want to put anybody at risk. And the response from everybody was, no, don't close a community garden. That is the type of place where we can all get together, keeping our distance, but doing great work and being outdoors. And growing food is one of the best things we can all do during this extra time that we have on our hands. You know, get outside, whether, you know, it's on a fire escape or you actually have space for a really nice garden. You know, get out there and do some work. It's not only good for you, but you can grow food. If you don't need the food, grow enough food to give away to other people. It's really uh, quite an amazing thing to do. And uh, as a farm-to-school coordinator, our local school, as you know, closed down, as all the schools did. And I was in there the other day putting together a beautiful raw salad, which was my month harvest of the month taste test this month. I was doing a kale and Napa cabbage salad with carrots and cram dried cranberries. And when I do the taste testing, you know, some schools more kids try it than others, but for this situation we were making all the free meals for the kids to come pick up at the school. And as their vegetable, every child is getting a container of the 
kale and Napa cabbage salads, which made me so happy because I actually know more kids are going to be trying it now than they would have when I go around on my little push cart handing it out. So I really am looking forward to hearing how people like it. And there's so much of it, you know, they'll have it for a few days and um, it's really so delicious. Both the both the kale and the Napa cabbage came from local organic farms and carrots, I can't say where they came from, but anyway, the salad's beautiful and I made a Japanese dressing with a lot of ginger and garlic, which is really great for fighting off some of this um you know, keeping your immune system strong. And actually this week in my newsletter I put in a couple links for helping you keep your immune system strong. One thing that I've always used as my go-to whenever I need to boost my immune system is a formula that's a combination of echinacea and golden seal. And Zand, Z-A-N-D, makes a really great one. And you can order it on Amazon. Um, They're out of one that I usually get, but they have one that has elderberry in it, which many people... Um, have said that elderberry also is really great for boosting your immune system. So I just take three dropper fulls of this tincture directly into my mouth every few hours. I mean, at least three times a day, but even more often. It is just wonderful. It's not something you want to do all the time, but when you need to boost your immune system, it's great. And I also shared my miso vegetable soup with everyone, which is so high in ginger, garlic, um, you can add cayenne pepper, and all of that is also really great to boost up your immune system and fight off any type of virus. Uh, vitamin C, vitamin D is also highly recommended to um, keep your immune system strong and prevent the catching of this virus. But this is really, you know, something that we've never seen in our life happening, and it's really something. Um, The House passed the emergency relief package, and just yesterday, finally, the Senate passed the package. So um, this package will provide sick leave for many millions of workers. Um, However, it still doesn't help the hourly workers, the millions of hourly workers that are being laid off from their jobs. So it will be interesting to see how um, the government steps up to the plate to help those people. I know um, unemployment services, I think the whole system crashed yesterday because so many people were trying to sign up for unemployment. But it's um, a scary time for many people, but I really recommend trying to not go into the fear and allow this opportunity to really bring us all closer together, even though we have to keep some social distancing, as you know, but to really use this as an opportunity to focus in on community and love and what's important and eating well and make, you know, making time to cook your food. Um, you know, I am all about cooking, and so check out my recipes. There's so many good ones. And <clears throat> since the new year, I've been... Um, really practicing a plant-based diet. And every once in a while, you know, I just crave some of those foods that I would sit down to that weren't always the healthiest, but there's so many ways to transform them 
to make them healthier. And that's one of my recipes that I'm going to share with you today. It's a barbecue medallion sandwich, and the barbecue medallions are made with barbecue tempeh. And so this is an open-faced whole wheat flagel. Flagel is something that might be mostly unique to New York, but many places are getting them. And basically it's kind of like a squished-down flagel bagel. So it's a flattened bagel, kind of like the same idea as muffin tops. It's the best part of the bagel, the top of the bagel. Um, and it doesn't have a lot of the dough in the inside, which so many people have been hollowing out. So it, it gives, But it gives you more space to put more stuff on. So I just eat one half of a flagel and I find it's really great. So I toasted that and then I made barbecue tempeh, which Basically, I cut the tempeh into four quarters, okay? It comes in a rectangle, and I cut it into four quarters. And then I cut each of those quarters down um, horizontally, down the middle, so that they are thinner. So now I have eight small rectangles of tempeh. And you can either bake them in the oven to cook them, you can steam them, or you can saute them in a frying pan with a little bit of oil until they're golden brown. And tempeh, you know, needs to be cooked well to really taste good. But any of those methods of cooking it will do the trick. And then you're going to put some of your favorite barbecue sauce on it. And I had some, I usually make my own barbecue sauce, but in a pinch. Uh, Trader Joe's has a few varieties of organic barbecue sauce that I can use. And I opened a jar of that in my saute pan and just let the barbecue sauce kind of be absorbed by the tempeh on both sides until it caramelizes a bit. And then I put that on top of the flagel. I put on some organic sauerkraut that I also warmed in the same saute pan. I put in some avocado and some tomato, and I topped it with handfuls of fresh arugula. And, of course, I had to cut it in half. It's a challenge to eat it because it's really piled high, but my God, it is so satisfying and so delicious and comes together so quickly. So if you're in the mood for something besides my usual salad, something a little bit more decadent that feels a little bit more comforting, um, this barbecued medallion sandwich was really great, and it did the trick and came together so so easily. So I highly recommend that. And now it's my pleasure to introduce to all of you, actually normally at this time I share all these events that are going on, but as you all know, just about every event has been canceled. Although many of them have gone to online um, online webinars. And Slow Fish is one of those that actually did that. Slow Fish was a a conference that was going on this weekend that I actually was not able to go to because um, because I was supposed to have a CSA fair this weekend, which also got canceled. But now you can register. Um, you can go to there's a a link to register online, but just Google Slow Fish um, and you should be able to get the link to register. But it's a great opportunity to learn more about, um, you know, the way we have community-supported agriculture. We have community-supported fisheries as well. And Slow Fish is really helping to promote the Slow Fish uh, community-supported fishery 
model. So check that out. But now it's my pleasure to introduce to all of you my guest this week, who is Philip Ackerman Leist, and he is a farmer and educator with decades of experience and expertise in founding and leading sustainable agricultural and food system programs for undergraduate and graduate students. He's the Dean of Professional Studies and the School of the New American Farmstead at Sterling College. He's also a farmer raising grass-fed heritage beef in Paulette, Vermont, where he and his family live on a remote off-grid homestead. He's the author of a great new book called A Precautionary Tale, How One Small Town Banned Pesticides, Preserved Its Food Heritage, and Inspired a Movement, Rebuilding the Food Shed how to create local, sustainable, and secure food systems, and another book called Up Tinket, Tunk, I'm sorry, Tunket Road, The Education of a Modern, Modern Homesteader. With interest in digital storytelling and supporting environmental activists, he and his collaborators at the Lexicon of Sustainability partner created Toppling Goliath, which is a multimedia project, which you can find at topplinggoliath.org, focused on the first town in the world to pass a binding referendum calling for the elimination of all synthetic pesticides. At home and as an educator, he tries to combine a farmer's pragmatism with a teacher's collaborative quest for the future. Sometimes it works, and sometimes I'm sure it's a challenge. Philip, you with me? How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. Uh, super to be with you here. I appreciate all the updates from your, your view of the world here. <laughs> uh, thank you. Well, I think we share many similar views. Um, I know you've been so busy this week working to get some of your courses all online so that people can still learn um, all that you have to teach. And um, that's an amazing feat. So thank you. I know I was in school this week too, and it's just a changing, changing dynamic right now. And it's great how so many of us are stepping up to the plate and doing what we can. And you are one of them. So thank you. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. It's it's also fluid, and I'm in my barn now, where I'm telecommuting to <laughs> with my my um, college faculty, and then we've also got two kids upstairs in the barn loft who are <laughs> they're, they're doing their schoolwork, attending school virtually now. So, what a new world! <laughs> it is. It is. Um, although one thing I have to say is, you know, it's not the same as you know, having the teacher there. I mean, I think some people are afraid that this might become the new norm. And all my teacher friends are saying, no, no, what we get at school is so much more for these kids than just the learning, right? They learn about community and friendships and um, compromise and working together. So this is, you know, a great substitute in a time like this, but it certainly, I hope, never replaces the wonders of a real teacher-student relationship. Right. I, I hope not, too. And as you well know, also, the food security piece that's related to our school system, I think that is popping out as, as one of the, you know, the things we also have to bear in mind is how important those programs that you and others work with are, are to the, the health and education of the students as well as the, just the attendance of being in the classroom, being in the cafeteria in the right way makes a big difference, too. 
Uh huh. So let's talk about the school that you're currently working at, Sterling College. Um, Sterling College has a different model than a lot of other colleges. Can you talk about the kind of education you're offering there and what's unique about its farm and dining hall? Sure. Yeah, I, I've been at Sterling for just over a year now, and it's a place I've watched for the past 22 years since I've been in Vermont. And it's really an extraordinary place in that you know the, the college curriculum itself is so deeply embedded in the farm, the forest, and the field experiences that the students have there. And it's, it's unusual in higher education in that, you know, it's constrained by the number of students it can have on campus in the residential program. So 125 students is really the, the carrying capacity of the campus. And that makes it a whole different kind of dynamic and community. And that's, that's been part of the fascination for me is watching as I've joined the Sterling community to, to see what happens in terms of, you know, the classes are done 50% or more in the field or on a farm or in the forest um, so that that education and the way people teach, they, they really do teach from the field and in the field. And then the dining hall is really pretty extraordinary. It varies year by year, season by season, what's happening on the college farm, but it's between 25 and 30% um, of the food in the dining hall comes straight from the farm and about 54, 55% is the estimate for what comes locally. And Bon Appetit magazine named it as the healthiest dining hall in the country. And I, I have no reason to doubt that at this point. <laughs> you know, no soft drinks, you know, desserts are served on occasion, but not with every meal. Um, it, you know, it really makes an amazing place to, to teach and to learn. And then we also, part of my, my position as Dean of Professional Studies is to broaden the audience so that we're also doing professional education for people of all ages, really learners of all ages and types. And so we've got four professional certificates that we have there as part of the professional education. And then we're also, even despite this, we, um, we were headed at, um, on our way to doing more in the way of online education to really take this the mission of Sterling College, which is to advance ecological thinking and action, find ways to get that to a broader audience, to more people than just 125 per year. Uh-huh. And so is the whole focus of Sterling College an agricultural um, education? Mm -hmm. There are five majors, and I would say an ecological education. So, you know, farming and food systems, that's part of it. And so ecology and outdoor education, environmental humanities. And, you know, there are also a lot of folks who are doing independent studies of various um, kinds. So, you know, but the focus is always on ecological, um, as, as I said, I guess, ecological thinking in action and trying to really cultivate that toward a lifetime of stewardship, not just the natural communities, I would say, but also human communities that go along with those. Mm -hmm. And so um, how has your school mobilized to confront what's going on with the coronavirus? Wow. You know, it's, it's been a big jump. Um, you know, the thing that I've admired about Sterling since I got there, and I think a lot of this actually is probably because of the team-based education and how much time we spent in the field, there's a, a real uh, inherent understanding among faculty and staff of, of how to be a team. You know, so it is, it, it's obviously a place that's deeply rooted in community, but there's also this notion of kind of teaching team leadership skills. And what I've seen in the past two weeks is we've realized we needed to go online, um, you know, with, with that not being part of really what Sterling has done at all up until this point. 
um, is just people have come together. The, the faculty have supported each other in figuring out these technologies, and we've all been working really hard to find ways to try to keep what you know, we still value so much about education, and that is the, the face-to-face piece, you know, whenever possible by doing virtual meetings or still one-on-one, you know, keeping that intimacy alive in whatever ways we can, but also trying to find ways to have assignments really linked to the natural world and find creative ways to have students go out in the field and bring what it is that they, they see and can learn and observe in their own natural and social communities and, and bring those sort of to the virtual table, if you will. So, you know, I, I think there's, it, it, it's been kind of amazing to see the creativity that faculty have come forward with just in the last week. So it's, it's really extraordinary. And students have been super supportive. They, they get it. And I'm sure there are times when, you know, there have to be frustrations on their end, but, you know, I think they realize part of their participation keeps places like Sterling alive and going through this pretty incredible tumult that we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, your most recent book, I have to say I loved it as a slow food person, you know, someone that you know, knows slow food actually came out of Italy, and, you know, there's so much about preserving food traditions and seed saving and all of that, and this book is just all about that, a precautionary tale, how one small town banned pesticides, preserved its food heritage, and inspired a movement. I mean, that's a, that's a slow food motto. So how did you first learn about this small Italian <laughs> town's effort, and what first captured your interest in this story? Yeah, you know, I just, I was in, incredibly fortunate, uh, Giovanni, in 1983 to go to this place called Brinnenberg Castle, uh, which is also an agricultural museum and international study center. And it was one of the, um, well, I was in, in the first group to go there of American college students. And it was a place where I started to really see this amazing diversified agriculture that I'd not seen in the United States and seeing these mountain farmers, you know, on these slopes where, you know, they're, they're jokes sometimes that even the chickens have crampons because the st- slopes are so steep. And, to actually see this diversified agriculture was extraordinary. And the place that I was living as a student there in 1983, um, it was the place that this, this event actually um, occurred, at least in further up in the valley. I was sort of at the, the lower level of the Finchgau Valley, uh, where this particular town is located. And so it was a place I visited first in 1983, fell in love with it, and kept watching it. And then I um, I'm taking study tours back to this area for the last, gosh, 15, 20 years, I guess. And um, so on a study tour in 2014, I was getting ready to kind of head out the door on the bus, and one of my mentors there said, you know, this little town of Malt that you know and love is having a referendum to ban all pesticides. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So I grabbed the graduate students, and I think we had about 12 or 14 of them that year, and um, we just we changed the plans and started going to Malta and meeting with people in order to figure out what was going on, because it was so extraordinary. I mean, to be the first place in the world to really tackle all synthetic pesticides, it was just unheard of. So what was the referendum to ban all pesticides and um synthetic fertilizers completely from the town and you know and what about and how far did that extend because we all know about the you know mm-hmm. and you wrote about it in the book the wind drift and you know how to really mm-hmm. keep those boundaries safe right 
Well, and, uh, you know, so and, and I, it's hard not to talk about it. And, I, you know, I, I just mentioned as well banning pesticides. The interesting piece was that um, the women in particular really sort of took charge and figured out how to make this a, a positive movement instead of one that sort of, uh, you know, well, it polarized the community in certain ways, but they tried to minimize that. And so they started talking about a pesticide-free future, and that's what they ended up calling for was a pesticide-free future. And so the referendum was a referendum that required the town council take this up, uh, to take the matter up and discuss it, and hopefully to find a resolution for it. And so they did that in 2014, and then they worked on the ordinances, which they put out in 2016, which were there to ban all synthetic pesticides. Organic pesticides like copper, sulfur, um, certain other things could still be utilized, the ones that are still allowed in organic certification, um, but not any of the other synthetic pesticides. And so they put those ordinances into place, and uh, they cruised along for a little bit. And then they ran into the Italian legal system, as one might expect, because of various lawsuits and other things. And so there's been this really interesting legal battle that um, has been continuing and continues. And, um, you know, fortunately, they they keep winning and, um, you know, getting this further and further through the courts. So that, that's been something that... Uh, people from around the world have started to watch is, you know, where where have they been able to be successful? What are the issues that are coming out of this that, that are related to international law and precautionary principle? So it's pretty uh, fascinating evolution and kind of this beacon that we're all watching. Yeah, right. Well, when you talk about the Italian legal system, I mean, look at our legal system, Vermont being the first um, state that ban GMOs, right? And then our legal system undid that, right? Um, yeah, it came right back at us, right? Yeah, so frustrating. But they, the people of Malls really were confronted with lots of threats. I mean, reading in the book, you know, like the pharmacist having threats to his life and stuff. Can you talk a little bit about some of the threats that people um, had, were exposed to and where were those threats coming from? Yeah, so, you know, kind of the, the story in a nutshell is that climate change has affected the Alps, as we know, and um, as that happened and temperatures warmed, the apple growers there, who are a really strong lobby themselves, um, started discovering that they could grow apples further and further up into these valleys, you know, into places where they couldn't grow apples before. And this town of Maltz was at the upper end of the Finchgau Valley, right where Switzerland, Austria, um, Italy all, all come together. And as the apple growers started to come in and uh, buy some of the land, and there were in a few cases farmers who converted you know, their traditional agriculture uh, to growing apples, then that started to really create attention because they were abutted right up against uh, these other farmers. And with only, at that point, only a three-meter, that is about 10 feet, um, buffer between, you know, someone who was spraying pesticides and a, a farmer's organic hayfield, for example, that's when the, the real rub started to kick in here. And so, the, you know, was the, already they were dealing with climate change, they're dealing with pesticides, and then um, you have this friction between these different entities. So some of the apple farmers started to get a, a bit aggressive. And for example, Johannes, the pharmacist, as you say, he um, one farmer threatened to run over him once with his tractor and come back and roll over him a second time to make sure that he was done for. And his, you know, his organic garden at home was defiled. His, um, 
family grave was desecrated. He ended up being uh, sued by over 100 apple farmers. And just about one month ago, uh, the Italian courts kicked out that lawsuit and ordered that all of his um, legal fees be paid for. So, um, you know, Johannes has borne quite a bit of the brunt. And certainly the mayor, whose name is um, Ulrich, or Uli as he's known locally, um, you know, Uli faced quite a bit of pressure in um, confronting this and and dealt with it for quite a long time. Um, And so served as mayor for uh, 10 years and is about to step down here um, with the new elections coming up in May. So it was it was hard. It was hard on farmers. It was hard on neighborly relations. Um, as much as people tried to find a way to coexist, inevitably you know, the economics were involved on both sides, people who were losing organic certification, people who wanted to continue to spray pesticides. That, that makes for a hard mix, but it also made for some interesting um, I guess, resolutions in the process as well. Yeah. Well, I know some of the traditional farmers, you know, in Italy, they just traditionally they didn't use that stuff, so they were, you know, by our standards organic, but they weren't necessarily labeled organic. Were they um, Mm -hmm. concerned about their certification of organic, or were they just really passionate about having their natural way of doing things not being disrupted. And what was really unique, you talk about their unique approach. What was so special about how they went about this? Yeah, I would would say there were people who were against uh, the apples coming in, or at least if they were not going to be managed organically, um, who farmers who had kind of three perspectives. You know, there were those whose organic certifications were jeopardized. Uh, you know, and if there were any pesticides found on their fields and their products and their animals. Um, and then there were those who, instead of organic, uh, were certified biodynamic. There were some of those. And then there were the, the third who just were people who said, listen, we've been literally doing this for thousands of years here. We've never needed pesticides in order to maintain our agriculture. And there's just no reason to taint the environment, you know, with, <laughs> with the pesticides. And so, you know, that, that really kind of set the stage. And, um, and, and it's really started to help advance this whole notion that, you know, they were living in a region that had started to bill itself to tourists really as an organic region. And so that was also jeopardized was this whole notion that here was one place that really was pure and not tainted with pesticides. And that made a, a big difference. And so as they started to tackle the issues you know, one of the things I respect the most about them and been urging other community groups as we try to advance things, um, they they had about 18 months of really intense dialogue where they brought in experts, primarily all of, from all over Europe, who were toxicologists, they were wildlife biologists, they were nutritionists, uh, they brought in the head of the, um, or one of the heads of the EU um, food safety program, brought in all of these people and there ended up being more than two dozen of those experts that they brought in to have these public forums to talk about the dangers of pesticides, um, or and in some cases whether pesticides were dangerous because they brought in some people who had different views, and that set the stage for you know, this kind of open discussion that that also was a literacy building campaign that ended up really making the difference. You know, to the point that when they had the referendum. 16% of the population are Malta voted, and 75% voted in favor of a pesticide-free future, which is stunning. You know, that's one of the most beautiful parts of the story, I think. 
Wow, that is. That's not like, you know, a, a just small majority. That's huge. That's great. That's it really near, is. Um, and, and they is supported near, the mayor as um, well. No, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Is this near where the <clears throat> um, the slow food movement is, where this town is? Or is it a different part of Italy? Yeah, different part of Italy, um, but that, um, you know, the slow food movement certainly permeated this region and identified several of the um, the products that are made there as being uh, products that needed to be on the Arc of Taste, which you know, I'm sure you're aware of the Arc of Taste is sort of, of the course. documented traditional foods that are highlighted and, and really, you know, that's the approach to conservation is giving them the spotlight. And so there were several of the foods there, including the... Um, the famous uh, bread that comes just from this one tiny valley where malt is, and a tiny portion of the valley, um, the, the Finchgapar, which is this wonderful bread, which is rye base. And um, it's actually people used to make the bread and then put it, hang it up uh, in special racks. And they would actually, they would make the bread two, three, four times a year and then hang it from their ceilings so that it would be dry and the mice couldn't get at it. And, you know, then just eat it, usually putting it in soup or something to um, soften it up. <laughs> but, uh, certainly give them good teeth with all that chewing. <laughs> really? Wow. You know, it was at, in Italy um, at one of the um, slow food conferences, Terra Madre, that I went to, where I first learned about the heavy spraying that grains have of glyphosate and that that, you know, that, that traditionally most wheat was being grown from or wheat was being grown from Rome and s- southern Italy and that the northern climates couldn't really grow the grains and then they found out that Canada was the you know was overtaking them as being the largest produ- producer of wheat and they were trying to figure out how was that possible and they found out that it, they were spraying it with glyphosate to dry it and um you know, and so many people are really wondering with the rise of the allergy against gluten, whether people are really allergic to gluten or whether it's the glyphosate that people are reacting to. And I have heard so many people say that when they go to Europe and they eat the bread there, that they don't have a reaction compared to eating it here. Have you heard about that? Absolutely, without a doubt. And I just, you know, I... I... I find that over and over again with the tours that I take, you know, people who are, um, you know, who feel like they can kind of risk it, they'll try some of this bread, like the Finchgarpar that I was just talking about, um, you know, and and realize that there, there's something different going on, and they, you know, they're really curious as to what that is, and most people, as you just pointed out, I mean, most people don't realize that glyphosate has been used, you know, without any oversight whatsoever by the FDA or anyone else. You know, it has been used as a desiccant you know, for trying to actually basically get the grain to dry at the very same time so that you don't bring the grain in and have, you know, the grains being at a, a different level of moisture, it, which is insane. I mean, glyphosate was used first as, a, you know, actually for cleaning um, these storage tanks, you know, because it actually, you know, would take the corrosion off so well. Uh, you know, when we look at the history of glyphosate, uh, which whitewashed, um, Carrie Gillum has documented so well, then we start to realize the insanity of what we're doing. It's just one pesticide among this whole ex- 
extraordinary, terrible cocktail of pesticides that are being used internationally. I mean, just, you know, no wonder we've got people in the United States, uh, over 50% of whom have some sort of chronic, chronic illness. Yeah. And it's definitely more here than it is in other parts of the world, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In terms of the desiccants, yes, that it's been used much more broadly here in the United States and, and with much less knowledge. I think it's starting to come out more. I'm certainly hearing people bring it up instead of me bringing it up at different talks that I've done. You know, it's starting to come up from the audience. So that's good. That awareness is really critical. Uh-huh. Um, let's take a couple-minute break, and when we come back, I want to hear more of how this um, movement is exploding and what what is happening now that they've passed this law there and how it is what kind of ramifications are happening so everyone don't go anywhere my guest is philip ackerman leist and i will be right back you're listening to bavani at ie green everyone, I'm Beauty Congretos. I'm a psychotherapist and sex therapist and author and host of the Ask Beauty Show. Are you tired of relationships that go nowhere and don't know why? Confused about why you have no sex drive or why despite all of your efforts, your depression and anxiety and substance abuse are still getting in the way of your life and your relationships? Well, you can tune in live every Monday afternoon from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Standard time where I tackle all of these issues and more and many of my guests are world renowned in their respective fields. You can also go to the PRN archives and listen to all of my previous shows. You can also leave voicemails for me at 862-800-6805 and together we can make 2020 the best year yet. I'm Celia Farber. And I'm Christina Borgson. We're the hosts of a brand new show, The Whistleblower Newsroom, right here on PRN. This is a show for and about whistleblowers. And by us, two investigative reporters brutally hammered for uncovering cover-ups and media corruption. This show is for whistleblowers. Who stand up for the truth and face devastating consequences. Who document facts and risk their lives and livelihoods to bring those facts to the public. They come from all walks of life, government, science, journalism, academia, and many other fields. They'll be safe, warm, and welcome here on the Whistleblower Newsroom every Friday morning, 10 a.m., right here on PRN. Yeah, I'm not known as a gadget guy, but I love gadgets that really do the trick, like the new app. The Progressive Radio Network has an app, thanks to our friends at Audio Now. Hey, this is Mark Farrell, host of Insight on Thursdays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, where we broadcast live out of New York City, but... If you can't catch the show live, no frets. It's always archived. It's always on the app. Download it now. Listen now. Listen later whenever you want. The Progressive Radio Network app is available from our friends at Audio Now. Check it out. Bhavani and I.E. Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And if you're just joining us, 
I'm talking with Philip Ackerman Least about his new book, How One Small Town Banned Pesticides, Preserved Its Food Heritage, and Inspired a Movement. So, Philip, um, right before the break, I was asking you about how this actually inspired a movement in Italy, has it, and has it gone beyond Italy? Right. You know, it's, it's been pretty extraordinary. I think, you know, what's amazing to me, and, and maybe to the people amongst themselves, is the fact that they, they really started this whole movement, you know, by virtue of, of really just wanting to, to care for their own community and the landscape there, which is about, in Maltz is about 92 square miles is the, the size of the township and about 5,300 people. And so, you know, but these were really ordinary people who decided to step up and step out and um, not people who were trained as activists, not people who'd done a lot of activism. So they started to step into this and, and then suddenly realized they were doing something that was so radically different from what had happened anywhere else in Italy um, and, and really in Europe as well, that suddenly they became kind of this beacon. And they also realized that they needed support from outside the community to kind of protect them because actually the, the regional government was um, very much kind of in, in bed with the apple farmers for the most part and the judiciary as well as the um, the agricultural um, agency. And so, you know, they, they had a big battle on their hands. And as they started to reach out, I think a lot of organizations and communities from you know, other parts of Italy and, and also other parts of Europe started to realize they needed to support the Maltzers, as they're called, the, the people of Maltz, and so stepped in. And so and it turned out that the um, PAN, PAN is the Pesticide Action Network, uh, which is an international organization and has chapters all over the world and in most countries. And so PAN EU stepped in and they actually started a campaign for pesticide-free towns. And that's also, you know, now is occurring as pesticide-free cities. London, uh, the different boroughs are voting now on being pesticide-free in London. And that's really been amazing to watch. And the the EU, uh, the European Union, has also paid close attention and I went with several of the Maltzers uh, almost two years ago to um, testify in Brussels uh, to the EU, to the Social and Economic Commission, on what Malta had done and why it was an example. And there were other towns and communities from Europe that were also presenting what they were doing to try to create these pesticide-free communities. So really, Malta has sort of been the the beacon among all of these entities as they've been stepping up and has, has also had an impact. I mean, now Vadana Shiva picked up on the story is um, she was gracious enough to write the foreword for this book. And she, she has started to really bring together communities across the world. I think, you know, realizing wisely that one community can't do this by itself in many cases, but you know, the more we can bring these communities together, from an international perspective and learn from one another on how to move this forward, that really is going to be the strength. And no longer do the farmers have to bear the burden themselves. You know, we realize that it's about communities and it's also about international networks. Uh-huh. It's very exciting. I'd like to see more of it here. I mean, the mm-hmm. power that these corporations have, like Monsanto, which is now Bayer, um, or, you know, other agro biotech companies, um, and for that matter, even pharmaceutical companies or, you know, food manufacturers. I mean, these big corporations 
are so huge. And with, you know, Citizens United, they have so much power because they're allowed to give as much money as they want to political campaigns. It seems like as a, you can't stop this engine. Um, any insight into how we can make the movement um, more powerful here? Yeah, I think there are a couple of ways, um, you know, and, and there are times when it seems so overwhelming, Bhavani, and then there are other times where I, I get this sense of hope. And I'm more hopeful now than I have been at any point in the past two or three decades about the possibilities. You know, certainly the, the glyphosate lawsuits that are happening against Bayer right now, you know, those really matter. And, you know, they've been successful so far. And, you know, we'll see kind of where all of that goes. But, you know, so the judicial approach, I think, is important on one hand. The grassroots piece is huge in my view. And part of what I see happening you know, right now is that um, there are groups like non-toxic neighborhoods, which um, that's a group that grew with one concerned mother and, and then a couple of other citizens in Irvine, California. Uh, they started to realize that <laughs> glyphosate was being used on the schoolyards and then started to understand more about various pesticides and herbicides that were being used. And so that's become, uh, that's become more of a national movement now. There are places like uh, South Portland, Maine, has been really extraordinary in what they've done, and they've been featured by the group Beyond Pesticides, which is a D.C.-based um, education lobbying political group, which I'd recommend people take a look there. Yeah, and I know South them Portland. well. Uh-huh. Yeah, and South Portland has been amazing, and, and folks should check out that story because one of the things that happened is they started to look at eliminating pesticides in their community is Eldridge Hardware, uh, which is a family-owned business with several different stores in the region. They actually ended up, they pulled all of the synthetic pesticides and synthetic fertilizers off their shelves. And the amazing piece in doing that is that their sales went up by about 30% when they did that. And so now they're teaching people about heirloom seeds, about gardens, about seed saving. And so, you know, you can turn the business model on its head, and I think we probably stand the best chance of doing that at the community scale. Um, and then if the communities cohere and, and we start to work together, that that's the point of real success, I think, until we, we find that wedge in, you know, kind of into the, the – paradigm that's too predominant and, and start to break that apart. I think we can do that as communities, and that's that's what gives me the most hope. Yeah, I'm there with you for sure. And I, again, what you're doing <laughs> in the work is yep. help inspire the young people that can really also get out there and do that going forward into the future. Because, you know, I find, I mean, there's people of the the senior generation and then, the, and then young people. And kind of in the middle, I think, while people are so busy with their mm -hmm. Their um, kids and family and whatever. Very there's not as much activity, and um, you know people working, volunteering in that age range. And I think we need to motivate them a little bit. But the young people really are getting it, and um, I think a lot of them anyway. And that gives me hope as yeah. well. Now you are yeah. a um, a rancher. You raise cattle, do you not? Mm -hmm. I, I do. We have grass-fed heritage beef. We have American milking Devon cattle here. So I found it really interesting that you lead tours to this region in Italy with a vegan dietitian. Can you tell us about that and how that works? 
<laughs> sure. You know, I, I just was really fortunate to meet Sharon Palmer, who is a dietitian based in California. And um, I think Sharon probably coined the term plant-powered, um, you know, back a, <laughs> but, uh, I don't know if it was a decade or more ago, but she started kind of, you know, building out that concept that people could have these plant-based diets that, that made sense nutritionally and, and, and certainly ecologically as well. And so Sharon was in the graduate program that I was directing, and we got to know one another. And, um, you know, and, I, and I, I've had some scenarios in my life when um, I, there were some pretty intense conflicts uh, that, that I was involved with between, you know, folks who were vegan and folks who were, you know, very um, kind of wedded to the whole notion of livestock agriculture. And I've always felt like the, the dialogue and the interplay between those worlds was really important. So when Sharon got to, she went on the study tour with me back in, I think it was 2015 or 2016. And, and she said, can we please do this for dietitians? Because this is such an important opportunity to see places like, you know, the area around Maltz, Brunnenberg Castle. So we started running these tours together. And um, I just, for me, I think for both of us, modeling, you know, these different, you know, sometimes they're different viewpoints and, you know, but ultimately I, I think we're all aiming, you know, for much the same thing. There, there are points of, you know, difference there for sure, but we're all looking for a world that makes more sense ecologically and ethically and from the point of view of, what do you want to call it, sustainability or regenerative agriculture. So I, I think, you know, instead of kind of having the circular firing squad that happens sometimes, you know, I, we ultimately have much the same vision for for what we want as a world and also what we want for people, you know, as, as humans and thinking about nutrition. So that's that's really been one of the joys of doing this is, is having that dialogue with Sharon, modeling that kind of dialogue and, um, you know, hoping we can find more points of commonality um, and, and remembering that ultimately we're all searching for much the same thing. Yeah, and I think that's so beautiful because I, too, as you can imagine, come in contact sometimes with militant vegans, as I call them, mm-hmm. you know, that have no room at all for other people making other choices. And I think it's really so important when we are seeking for the, a good ecological model that there is room for people making individual choices still with a consciousness of regenerative agriculture and doing what's good for the planet, doing what's good for animal husbandry and, you know, and, and um, rightful living, you know, that everybody has mm-hmm. the right to make their choice, but how we make our choice and what we support is so important. I think modeling, as you're saying, modeling that the two can coexist, you know, is so important because, you know, it's it's a turnoff. I mean, if you want to try to get people to eat more vegetables, you know, mm-hmm. attacking what they are normally doing is not the way. <laughs> and so... Right. <laughs> So yeah, it's well, so good, and it's also important. I mean, as you know, I have had on, um, you know, the the guys from Soil for Climate on, you know, and they talk about regenerative agriculture and how, you know, raising animals in this way helps to sequester the carbon. And, you know, I mean, there's 
there's good that come f- can come from it if you're doing it in a mindful way. Right. You know, and I think we have to remember, I mean, herbivory, you know, the herbivores, you know, being part of the natural environment. I mean, that's, that's always been there. There's the choice about whether we domesticate or not and, and what we do in that regard. Um, but, you know, that, that whole herbivore cycle is a really important part of carbon sequestration and, and what the potential is. Um, you know, whether there's the death of an animal involved, that, that becomes a whole different um, you know, kind of question that, that we do have to address. And one of the farmers and malts that Sharon and I love to take students to visit with, um, who's become a good friend, he was a conventional dairy farmer, then he became an organic dairy farmer, and now he's he's vegan. <laughs> and he's huh? just made this decision, and, and to hear his story, that progression of ideas is fascinating. And I, I don't think we, in education, we don't do a good enough job in a lot of cases in recognizing that our nutritional and our ethical decisions are often, you know, evolutions based on experience. And we can come out in a lot of different places over a period of a couple of decades based on what we bump up against. And, and I think we have to allow the openness for that to actually happen. It's really important. And to, to keep that keep that as part of the educational dialogue that, you know, we're also science is changing. We're all learning more and more about nutrition and, and what that means and what it's all about over time. So just wish we could be a little more open-minded, not quite as militant in our different perspectives. Sometimes. Right, I think right. That's, that's, I mean, the one way that I can be militant is, you know, to, when I talk about factory farms, you know, I can I can be pretty militant when it comes to that. Right. I don't think there's any, they, they should be outlawed, you know, they should not be existing, I, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, that it's just not the way to raise animals and um, it's not good f- to eat that kind of meat either. So in that way... Right. You know, I'm, I can be militant, but in other ways, it's for what your choices are, as long as you're making conscious choices, I think that's all good. So how often do you take these tours to Italy? Well, we last year we did two, one in the summer and one in the fall. Uh, we were slated to have one in June, um, which we now have on hold, obviously, kind of given everything um, that's going on. So it's um, it's not that it will be canceled, but we may have to postpone it. We're deciding in April. So, so we typically do one to two of these per year, and they're designed specifically for registered dietitians and nutritionists. Um, so if their folks are interested, they should definitely reach out. We'll reinstate it when the time is right um, if we have to postpone the June tour. And, um, you know, they've just been really wonderful, and, and that's, that's provided the um, continuing education credits that dietitians need and, and doing it in a really kind of radically different kind of environment with a different approach of really, really looking at sustainability from the time of the Iceman, who was found just above the Finchgau Valley where this whole story of malts took place, you know, and looking at the food traditions since um, since he was alive 5,300 years ago, and and we can actually there's there's such fascinating forensics work in terms of what the Ice Man ate the last 72 hours of his life, which I talk about in the book, and you know we you start to learn about the food traditions of that age, and then start to realize how does that apply to the the current day, and so many of those food traditions that he was involved in in some form or fashion are still alive today in that valley. So it's a great place to really think hard about traditions, uh, food traditions, and how those relate to nutrition and also what we're doing to the environment by virtue of agriculture. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's amazing when you know when you learn about how much of the greenhouse gas emissions are you know come from the agricultural sector. It's really amazing because people don't think of it like that, and it doesn't need to be that bad. So we can definitely improve on that. So um, just share with my listeners because we're almost out of time. Share with my listeners how they can um, find out more about Sterling College and the work you're doing, and where they would. Find out even about these tours if they're interested. Sure. So you can go straight to the Sterling College website, and there are two Sterling Colleges. We're the one in Vermont, and we're the one that really focuses on food and agriculture and ecology. And um, so that's sterlingcollege.edu. And then you can look for us under the um, tab there for the School of the New American Farmstead, uh, where we uh, have the study tours listed, the four professional certificates that we have going, and then we also have an online course that is about to kick off on April 6th that folks might be interested in called Surviving the Future and the uh, Conversations for Our Time. And that will actually be, um, I think, a really fascinating course for some of my colleagues from the U.K. and around Europe and around the U.S., um, where we're talking in real time about these issues that we're facing right now. And suddenly that course, even though it was designed and <laughs> we were ready to go out you know, before all this happened, but now it's even all the more relevant. So we hope folks can join us for that conversation within that eight-week course as well. And is that open to everyone, or what kind of fee is connected mm -hmm. to these courses? Right. So, the, um, you know, it, it is open to everyone. The fees range depending upon the courses, the study tours, the certificates, and those um, those fees are all online. And we also do everything we can at Sterling College to try to make things affordable and accessible. Um, so we have scholarships that are available for the online courses and for the certificates um, and study tours. So we, we try to help as much as we can in that regard. Uh-huh. That's wonderful. Well, Philip, thank you so much for taking time in your busy life to join me this morning. It was really so informative. And everyone out there listening, get the book. It's great. A Precautionary Tale. Thank you so much, thank Philip. Thank you so much, Bhavani. Really a pleasure to meet. Likewise. Take Thanks care. for joining us. You've been listening to Bhavani at I Eat Green on the Progressive Radio Network. See you all again next week. Have a great rest of the week and stay safe and boost your immune system. <laughs>